I'd like to speak this evening about the radiance of the heart. The words the Buddha spoke in the period immediately before his death included a phrase which has translated in various ways, but one of the translations for which is essentially the instruction or the invitation to us to be a lamp unto ourselves. To be a lamp unto ourselves. The image of a lamp, the, the other translation I'd say is uh, to be an island unto oneself. And uh, one can see a certain similarity in terms of something that is self-supporting, self-contained in a certain way. But the image and the perhaps metaphor that the, the phrase to be a lamp unto yourself, to be a lamp unto ourselves, what that evokes I find rather interesting and useful to contemplate, to reflect upon. A lamp is a, we could say, mechanism for transformation, for the transformation of matter in the form of fuel into energy in the form of light and warmth. There's a way in which we can understand our practice as this process of transformation, of understanding the way in which that which we call matter, i.e. solidity, is in fact something expressing energy, something expressing what we could describe as light and warmth. Now, this may sound a little uh, obscure, but uh, hopefully it will become clear as I speak about this, what the intention behind that reflection or the, the point with that reflection is. The qualities we could say of light and warmth, which are the manifestation of a lamp, the product we could say, or the result of that transformation that takes place in a lamp, they could be seen as expressing or reflecting the qualities that are very much at the heart of what we are exploring revealing, discovering in this journey. The quality of awareness, of mindfulness, that capacity to see things as they are, the capacity that reveals things as they are. This that we could speak of as awareness, we see that it has a, there's a real intelligence and in fact a wisdom that comes when we live according to seeing things clearly, when we live according to what is revealed by the simple, direct apprehension of the way things are, that mindfulness, that awareness offers us. We can also see that love, that quality of, of caring, of warmth, of friendliness, which in its expression, when it is engaged, when it's brought forth from us, 
shows itself as both kindness and compassion. This is really in some ways very similar to the quality of warmth that we could sense or recognize from the image of the lamp. A sense of something that warms our life, warms our heart, warms our experience. Love is often recognized as having that quality. And these qualities, these two particular qualities, which ultimately express also many other qualities through their cultivation and development, we can understand as being innate, or perhaps we could say inherent in the awakened mind. In the very core of what it is, or the heart of what it is we come to discover on this path through the journey of our practice, through the journey of our exploration, through the journey of our awakening. And so it's interesting, I think, or important, in fact, and useful to contemplate these qualities as not something that we are seeking to bring into being, that we are somehow charged with creating or generating, which, if you've been struggling with whether you can actually do that, there's a, a validity in the struggle because it's not really something that we do. These qualities, we could say awareness and love, are not created by our practice. They are revealed by it. And the process of our practice, the journey of our practice, is coming to recognize the process and the manifestation of the obscuration or the obstruction to our accessing these qualities. The activity of the mind in the grip of blindness, of ignorance, which we've spoken of and reflected upon over these days, and particularly the activity of papancha. But we see how this generates and creates. It sort of seems to bring into being a construction which has to it a sense of solidity. And in that, that construction, whatever it is, it has the effect of obscuring what would otherwise be revealed in the absence of that construction. It's like we build a, a wall and then we can't see what's behind the wall. We build a structure and then we somehow imagine or conceive life to be contained within, constrained within, bound within that structure, that construction. But the qualities of awareness, the qualities of love that we can recognize, that we can sense, that we can see are not so far away from us because we're able to make contact with them. We're able to access them, not in every moment, not necessarily easily, but we, we begin to recognize that possibility for ourselves. They are qualities that are present, that are in the very nature of what it means to be awake in the present moment, here and now, and conscious. And they are boundless. They are not limited or constrained in and of themselves, in the nature of what they are. But we experience them. 
as being lost or limited. We experience the sense of our own access to them, the sense of what we, when we, if we would speak about it in those terms, our capacity for these as being limited or at times being lost. This loss of contact with this, these qualities, these natural capacities, these innate manifestations of the awakened mind, this loss takes place because of the way we grasp at, the way we resist our experience. So much of our attention, much of our practice, much of the teaching that we're reflecting upon is understanding the ways in which we grasp at and resist our experience. Learning to recognize and release ourselves from the compulsive habit, the compulsive need to do just that, to grasp at or resist experience. And so if we understand practice from this point of view, we can see that rather than somehow trying to go somewhere else or produce something other than what's actually here, it's not about that. That habit, that movement is the tendency of the grasping mind. It's the tendency of the constructing ego self, the sense of trying to get something, go somewhere, produce something or be someone other than what is, or we could say, what we are. That sense of movement towards something other. And that very movement towards something other is, in fact, of course, the departure from where we are, that we start to recognize more and more clearly as what's going on so much of the time when we're not practicing and quite a lot of the time when we are. So we could say that our practice is not so much to be present, but to not depart. We could say we practice non-distractedness rather than presence, because presence, awareness, it's not something we do. It's something which simply happens when we don't do something else. It's simply what's there when we're not distracted. It's not like we manufactured it. It's the distracted activity, the entangled, reactive movement of the mind that takes us away from it. How often we're pulled by the sense that what is important, what is real, what is true, what is meaningful, is out there, is somewhere else, is something different than this, this that's right here. But when we, when we just allow that urge, that tendency to soften, to relax, to not compel us as it perhaps has done much of our lives, we release that distraction or that distractedness, that investment in it, then we're quite naturally here. There's a natural quality of wakefulness, of presence, of conscious aliveness that we don't need to find or create but that we need to support our connection with by not abandoning it, by not trading it in for something else that appears to us more attractive and yet is ultimately unsatisfying, ultimately doesn't serve our deeper well-being, our deeper understanding.
So what is this sense of being present? We talk about it. People even ask, so what is it? What are you talking about being in the moment or the present moment? What is this that's watching, that knows? Or seems to know, or thinks it knows. It's busy telling me that it knows. Which of course isn't what knows. It's just something else going on in our mind. And yet there is this that's here when we're really present. When we're quiet, when we're still. We notice, what is this that's happening? That we take for granted because it's been going on for our entire existence. And yet it's remarkable and mysterious. The sense of experiencing, this, just the, the knowing that takes place, that we can recognize but we can't really take hold of. In its nature, we could say, it doesn't have any boundary to it. It's all-encompassing. It receives whatever comes. It's not like it's limited. It's not like it's kind of making choices. It's simply a knowing that knows. A recognizing that recognizing, a consciousness that's conscious. It's just this. And it's not that it's something, and yet we can recognize this is taking place. It's like this is something that's here, that's known, that's knowing. But it seems like it's limited. It seems like it's defined or boundaried or subject to being sort of owned or contained by the way in which we identify with our thinking around it and about it, or in fact any thinking at all. When we believe in the content of our thoughts, the very nature of the thinking process is that it tends to divide one thing from another. It separates and contrasts and compares. It measures, it evaluates, it analyzes. It allows us therefore to distinguish one thing from another which is really useful and helpful. And yet, at the same time, it creates a sense of separateness, of boundariedness, of distinctions and divisions. And when we believe in the absolute truth of those distinctions, those divisions, those, we could say, measurements or evaluations, it creates internally a sense of boundariedness, a sense of limitation, a sense of something stops here and something else begins there. I stop here, you begin over there, is of course the fundamental division that we experience, the fundamental separation that's created by the way in which we believe the thoughts that are functioning in order to distinguish and to separate and to differentiate because there's a value in it. And yet, there's a profound limitation in the believing what the thought has to say. So what happens when we can see the thinking? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? We can see the thinking. Have you noticed occasionally that it's possible just to see it? Like a cloud coming, moving through the sky. It's like, oh wow, that's a thought. And there's no real sense when we can see it like that, that this is who I am, because if anything, you know, it's like the eye ball, not the self-eye, but the eyeball can see everything except itself. Even with a mirror, it's only ever seeing an image, a reflection of it. It's not actually seeing the eye. 
And just in the very fact that we can be aware of thought, we can be mindful of it, that's telling us that, oh, that's not really who we are. Because we couldn't see it otherwise. We would be it. And we're not it. We're not the thought. Some thoughts that's obvious with. But other ones are a little more subtle for us. And yet when we don't identify with thinking, when we can just see thinking as thinking, thought as thought, there's a, there's a quality to that seeing, to that knowing, to that, again, whatever word we use for it, it's important to understand the word is just the word. It's not really what we're talking about here. And yet hopefully it helps us point to and remember or recognize what it is that's experiential in this. Because when we're not identified with our thinking, there's that, that sense of compartmentalizing, of separating, of cutting and dividing really doesn't have the solidity that it otherwise appears to. In fact, it can quite remarkably at times seem to dissolve for us and at times we can experience and report and describe the sense of that separation or that harshness of distinctions between this and that, me and you, inner and outer, seeming to, to break down or just not to be there. And in that, there's an openness, there's a, an absence of a, of a limit, of a, of a boundary, and we could recognize that or seek to articulate that as a, as a, as a radiance. And we could say a radiance of awareness, of consciousness, of mindfulness. It's just like in the sense that radiance just expands out. It doesn't stop anywhere. It just fills the space available to it. And so far as there are no limits on that space, there's no identification with any boundariness or definition, then those limits, well, there aren't any. So it just fills all that is. And again, the language is a little bit problematic here. It's not like something is filling something else. But there's just that sense of opening up. Opening up. So what's that like for us when we sense, when we're touched, when perhaps, perhaps in just moments we can feel that there is this conscious knowing of the moment that we're inhabiting or that's inhabiting us or again, however we say it doesn't quite get it and yet it's this, it's this. And it's located here. Clearly, and now, clearly. But it's not locatable. Huh? You can't get hold of it and say, that's it. I saw it. Of course not. And yet there's that sense of, of just being here, of being now, of this that is now, that happens to know that it is right now. And yet the knowing isn't separate from the simple fact of the, the being right here. This knowing that is not bound to anything, this presence, this awareness, this mindful, conscious wakefulness that isn't bound to anything, that isn't graspable or locatable or definable, and yet is what's happening. 
This is not graspable and is simply revealed as the condition that's there when we're not grasping at anything. When we're not taking hold of something and therefore being pulled away from where we are, it's just this. It's kind of ordinary. But also remarkable. When we try and engage our conceptual mind around that, it gets into trouble. So feel free to not understand this. <laughs> it may even be a relief. But what's it like just to come to that place of recognizing we can't articulate or grasp it in the mind, and yet something that we, we sense, that we know, we feel in the stillness, in the silence, in, the, in the, just the moment when we're not trying to get somewhere else and we're here. And it's like, well, it's just this. Ryo Khan, a Zen monk and poet, lived in the Middle Ages. I think I may have shared one of his poems earlier in the retreat. He, he said once, do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. So we practice non-distractedness. We practice not leaving in order to see what's here, in order to understand what it is to really be here in the very midst of this, whatever that is. We also practice non-resistance. It's the other side, we could say, of the same process. Non-resistance, non-reactivity. We see that when we're not distracted, there's a natural consciousness, knowing, presence, awareness, mindfulness of what is. When we're not resisting the experience, which is the other piece of this, really heart of this practice, core of this, what we're doing, when we're practicing non-resistance, when we're not resisting the experience, not reacting to it, and we can see how many ways in which we do that, of course, the, um, the habits of negativity, of fear, of anger, of hatred, of kind of pushing away, of rejecting, of closing down to and withdrawing from. When we're not pushing away or withdrawing from, there's a natural openness that's there. There's a natural boundlessness of heart, a natural caring and openness that, again, it's not something we manufacture. It's not sort of somehow the result or the product of our having let go of or got rid of or somehow undone the negativity, the reactivity, the judgment, the blaming, the anger, the fear, the hatred, all of that, in a way, pushing away, disconnecting from. But it's revealed as there when we're not doing that. It's not created by it, it's revealed, it's there. Our practice is to see what is true and real. 
and prior to the movement of the mind. To see what is prior to the movement of the mind. Which the movement of the mind in the form of grasping or resistance seems to obscure. But ultimately does not obscure. When those moments come, and they do come, and maybe not when we're practicing the loving kindness and really working on it, because sometimes that can be the case, but other times not at all. And yet just walking down the lane, there's a moment in which we feel ourselves open and we're not in resistance to anything. And there's a way in which we can see or sense or feel the aliveness of everything around us, the sensitivity, the tenderness of all of this that's going on, teeming multitudes of existence, life, beings, happening all around. And there's a, there's a natural sense of caring that comes with that, that's in one sense remarkable, and in another sense not remarkable at all, but totally ordinary, totally recognizable to all of us. Because we know it. It's not new to us even though it might be completely fresh and in one sense never before known. And yet, in another sense, in another way, recognized. Because we recognize that which is ultimately true. The, the mark of that which is true is that it is both fresh and new and yet also paradoxically familiar. And when we have that sense of just, we're not resisting, we're not reacting, we're not fighting with life. There's a sense of openness to it, the sense of just receiving life, allowing the heart to resonate with that intermingling of experiencing with that which is experienced. Sort of an intermingling that takes place, that we feel touched by, moved by. The natural sense, the obvious response to life is really to wish to care for it, to wish to contribute to it, and to not make more demands upon it than we need to. When we're not so caught in our normal reactivity when we're not so caught in our need to somehow hold on to and define ourself, but we really just are in touch with the heart and the sense of the caring that we contact in that, the heart-mind. I'm not just referring to the, the heart as we talk about it in the uh, Western sort of vernacular, but uh, what we call perhaps the heart-mind, that capacity that is touched and responds. We talk about it as citta. The Buddha refers to it as citta, but that capacity that's touched, affected, and responds. We see in that responsiveness, there's a, a way in which the responsiveness is natural, is organic, is innate, we could say. And yet it becomes limited, it becomes constrained by our own patterns and habits of fear and reactivity. And when it's not there, the way we experience and relate to and interact with life is very, very different. 
I mean, when we, when we feel our body in the, in the presence of life, in the presence of life that we are mingling with, this body is a very different thing than my body, which I somehow have to preserve and protect and keep clean and make look good and all of that. Of course, I still do need to take care of it and keep it you know, relatively clean and looking okay so it can function and do what it needs to do. But one might also just contemplate it and think, what's going on here? This body that can be the source of so much angst for us. You know it's not really your body. It's, you know, a multi-occupancy um, residence. Have you ever contemplated that? I find it really interesting and useful. Some of the occupants would be a little bit embarrassing to own up to. You know, I've got things growing between my toes that have been there 25 years or more. And I've spent a lot of time trying to evict them, but come to the conclusion that they want to stay. And basically, we're going to have to cohabit. And probably they're going to be here when I'm gone kind of annoying and embarrassing. I don't know whether they're going to feel like they've kind of won in the end. Probably they wouldn't bother. But, you know, our body is full of bacteria that keep us alive, as well as a bunch that maybe sometimes cause us unwellness. But if this body was a democracy, we wouldn't be in charge. We wouldn't get elected. You know, we think we're keen on democracy. Okay, hand over the power to the, you know, the multitudes. We don't do that, do we? And yet I find there's something quite delightful about just sensing what it is to relate to this body, not from the point of view of it's just mine, but okay, there's life going on in here. And to really care and respect, care for and respect that life, which includes the life that I call me. But equally includes other life. And from that sense of my body being a shared multi-occupancy sort of thing going on, it's quite obvious to see how, of course, our life is participatory in something. We, we, we're part of something that's more than what we've imagined. And we can sense that the breath that flows in and flows out is constantly speaking to us in the very organic molecular mechanisms of a co-participation, of a, of, a, of a sharing in the resource of, of oxygen amongst living beings. And that stuff, those molecules, they get right into our cells, you know? They're not just hanging around out there, getting breathed in and breathed out. They actually get right into the bits on the inside, which we think of as really me on the, you know, maybe my throat and the air in there is, you know, but once it's in your cells... Either that's as far in as it gets, or, you know, what can we say? These things are passing between beings, passing between life. All the molecules in your body have in the past been molecules in other bodies or other materials and plants and, and minerals. And there's something about just contemplating the sharedness of it all. It's like it's all being shared. When we do that from a place of openness, there's a sense of, of course, of course. There's a sense of the, really the, the, the beauty of that, how, how precious, how lovely, that this is all being shared. And that when we're open in this way, again, 
things touch us. And that when it, when it, that kind of word that just actually wasn't written down, it just popped into my head, intermingling. It's like we, we feel a resonance in the heart. We feel a, a resonance in our experience where the quality of it is this vibratory, this vibrational sort of quality that by its very nature doesn't sort of stop here. It just feels like it's being touched and touching and there's an interplay, an interaction, intermingling of life, of experience going on. And it's a resonance or an intermingling, a, a vibrance that doesn't seem to sort of pay too much heed to what we call inside and outside. That actually in its very movement, in its very in the very experience of it, that sense of inside and outside seems to start to drop away. Seems to be less tangible, less solid, less it's not like something we can point to and say, Oh, there's the bit where I stop and everything else begins because actually what is touching me is touching me from outside. And how can it do that? Obviously it's got in. And if it's got in, then it can't be on the outside, can it? It can't be on the outside because it's got in. And it's just my thinking that's talking about inside, outside. When we start to release ourselves from the deeply conditioned and ingrained patterns and habits of reactivity, of negativity, that sense of pushing away, that sense of pushing away, we, we start to see that what they're all about is somehow trying to protect something that we've conceived or imagined to be on the inside. And whichever way and however we've decided, decided or conceived what's inside, that's become the territory to which the caring that really is at the heart of our life, that moves everything in the end. Everything comes from this. The very whole nature of the path is that it rises out of compassion for our suffering, out of aspiration for our liberation. So there's caring right in the core of this. We couldn't do this without it without that caring. It wouldn't happen. It just wouldn't happen. But what happens is the natural caring that is just an expression of how life is, that is revealed fully in the awakened heart and mind, but that caring becomes constrained by our identification with a part of the totality that we've called me or mine, and that we've decided in some way is that which I will care about. And everything that falls outside of that which I've called me or mine, I don't have to care about. It can take care of itself. And there's that sense of we've separated off. But when the reaction isn't there, when that sense of boundariedness isn't there so much, the nature of, of that which we can call love or caring. Caring is perhaps a less grand word. It's more accessible sometimes because we can see we care. We really do. Even when we feel our hearts aren't open to others or ourselves and we recognize that, when we see it, it's actually it's, it's, it's painful, it's grievous to the heart for us to see where we don't care. And that's because we care. 
So even in the not caring, there's still a caring, interestingly enough. And so that process of identification constrains the movement and the flow that is otherwise natural and unbounded. And as we don't identify so much with the sense of me separate from everything else, the sense of this in here apart from all that out there, then the movement of that caring quite naturally flows as if that boundary didn't exist, which ultimately it doesn't. That quality of caring that is natural, that doesn't have to be created, is simply being liberated to do what it does by our practice of relinquishing, releasing, letting go, abandoning the habit of resistance, of negativity, of pushing away or shrinking away from our life or from any experience or expression of life that we encounter. And what that means is that there is a way in which we can live in a profoundly interconnected expression of what is true and most deeply true about life. That we can recognize, that we can understand, and that we can orient and align our life with. That we are not separate. And that there is a greatness of heart that is here that expresses this truth that is part of that truth a greatness of heart that makes remarkable things possible There's a very uh, touching story that I heard some years ago of a little boy whose sister was sick with a very serious uh, illness and required a transfusion of very particular blood factor in order to save her life. This blood factor was very rare. In fact, they couldn't find anyone who had the right blood, except she was seven, he was five, except her little brother. And so, feeling that they needed to take some blood from this little boy to save his sister, his parents spoke to him and said, you know, it's a little boy, your sister's dying. She needs some blood from you or she's going to die. Can we take some of your blood to save her life? And the story recorded that the, the little boy kind of went a little bit pale and sort of just stopped for a few moments, couldn't quite respond, and then eventually said, okay, yes. And so they took him into the hospital and um, took some blood out of his arm, the way one does. He took it to transfuse it into his sister's, into his sister's body. And as that was taking place, and the parents came back over to the little boy to say thank you, and he said to them, with eyes really wide open, he said, can you tell me now how much longer before I die? And something in the story, just remarkable, what it speaks to, not just of the, 
incredible courage and willing to sacrifice himself that the little boy thought he was doing. The love and the really the greatness of heart in a child in that situation. To me, it's one of many, many examples, and I could give many more that I've encountered over the years, of places where we see the immense capacity of love that is in our hearts, that is in the human heart and what it means to be human. Sometimes we're really touched by that because it speaks to us of something that I think in our core we know is true, that we have this capacity within us to love in a way that is unstoppable and immeasurable. And it shows up in many different ways. One of my other favorite stories is another story of Rio Khan, um, who I mentioned earlier and who was known for his great love of playing with children and the natural world and how on one occasion he was observed on a winter's day in the sunshine, taking the lice out of his robe and putting them on a rock in the sunshine to warm themselves up. And how remarkable, how considerate, how sensitive. <laughs> and at the end of the day, when the sun was going down, being seen picking them up and putting them back in his robe. And you wonder, wow, what did he understand? What did he know? Where was his heart in that? And again, it's something delightful and beautiful. And we just sense the, yeah, that doesn't mean we have to feed the local insect population necessarily. And yet that sense of communality, that sense of caring that sometimes moves out beyond the boundaries speaks to us again. It speaks to us of something that's boundless. Something that is boundless. And it's not something, it's more the attitude or the seeing or the knowing or the, the recognition of what is true reveals a boundlessness, expresses as a boundlessness. It's not there's a something that's boundless, but there's a boundlessness. It's a quality that's recognizable that we, that we see. And in its expression as love, love sees all that it sees as not other than that which is seeing. Love sees all that it sees as not other than that which is seeing. And therefore the loving, the care, naturally extends to all that it encounters. That is the boundlessness of love that we are releasing, that we are liberating in our practice. That we are allowing to flow more and more fully and freely to fill the space of existence, the life within and around us. So in this way we can sometimes be touched, we can sense in a way beyond words and yet very real, very immediate for us. We can start to sense that that which we are awakening into, that which we are awakening to, the truth of life, is, is something boundless, something radiant. It's something that, again, it's not something, but 
the sense of being in contact with that is this boundlessness, this unfetteredness, this unconstrained, unlimited sense of opening out and opening out and opening out. These qualities that I've spoken of, love and awareness, we could say caring and consciousness, presence and tenderness, these are the natural expressions of the awakened mind, the mind that is no longer bound, the mind that is no longer, longer limited and constrained by the grasping and by the resistance, and that in its nature is radiant, in its nature is radiant. And the tragedy of our human condition is the blindness that does not see, the ignorance that is not aware of that radiance, that boundlessness, that openness, that vastness. And in the unawareness, in the blindness, in the ignorance, we become entangled in chasing after what is revealed by that boundlessness, that openness, that vastness, that awareness. All the things that appear within it. As we start to understand the nature of that which is awakening itself, the pursuit of the things makes no sense. That doesn't mean we don't still care for them and engage with them. But that the, the heart comes to rest where it is. It doesn't seek elsewhere. Because that would make no sense anymore. To seek for something other when there is this. The Buddha once spoke of this. He said, This heart-mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is clouded or obscured by attachments that visit it. This the ignorant do not understand. And for them there is no development and cultivation of the heart-mind. He said, this heart-mind is free of the attachments that obscure and color it. This the wise understand. And for them there is cultivation and development of the heart-mind. This mind is luminous, radiant, obscured, and yet free. The blindness that we seek to liberate ourself, ourselves from, and our world, to liberate our world from, is the blindness that cannot see, the radiance that is, the boundlessness that is. And so we practice non-distractedness. We practice simply being present. We practice non-resistance, which is simply practicing 
making way for love that is already here to reveal itself. And in this we are giving ourselves to the journey of awakening, awakening to the nature of life. The truth of life. And in that we come to see that what we imagine or conceive ourselves to be is both very simple, ordinary, unimportant, unnecessary, and also remarkably precious, remarkably beautiful, of immense value. I'd like to finish with a poem. Picking up from the image of the Buddha's words to make of oneself a lamp. When we talk about that, the sense of the light of awareness, the warmth of love. This is a poem by Mary Oliver called The Buddha's Last Instruction. And just because it's a little hard to recognize straight away what's going on, there's really two scenarios being described, which is one which is obvious, the other is where she is as she's writing this, it would seem, or imagining it. And I'll go actually through the poem a couple of times. The Buddha's Last Instruction, Mary Oliver. She writes, Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs detached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I felt, I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head he looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, 
I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. So may we all, in our practice and through our lives, abide more and more fully in the simple presence of awareness, of love. May we live in the spirit of interconnectedness. And boundlessness for our own welfare, for the welfare of all beings. <laughs>